The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. We'll have some special recommendations of audiobooks handpicked by me at the end of the show. I wished on the moon for something I never knew. Wished on the moon for more than I ever knew. A sweeter rose, a softer sky, an April day that would not dance. Away. I begged of a star to throw me a beam or two. Wished on a star. That's the great Ella Fitzgerald singing along with Nelson Riddle's orchestra. The song was I Wished on the Moon. The lyrics of that song were written by our subject today, Dorothy Parker. Dorothy Parker. How did she become so famous? Why should we care about her today? That's coming up, along with a special draft of the top ten sayings of Ms. Parker, today on the History of Literature. Here we go. We have a great show today. Dorothy Parker, possibly the coolest writer who ever lived. And yes, I'm considering the fact that she was unhappy for much of her life. That's part of the coolness. Happy writers don't need our help and barely deserve our admiration. But Dorothy Parker, she was the best. Dorothy Parker was born in 1893 at her parents' beach house in New Jersey. But within months, she moved to New York City where she lived for most of the rest of her life. Her childhood was extremely unhappy. Her mother died when she was only four. She hated her stepmother and later accused her father of physical abuse. Her stepmother died, too, when Dorothy was nine. It was an unhappy household. It's easy to see the sadness as it carried through throughout the rest of her life and her writing. She was a seeker and a romantic and a crusader for liberal causes throughout her life but the bleakness of reality was always just below the surface. As a girl, she lived on the Upper West Side of New York, where she attended a Catholic school. And then, after graduation, she moved into that world that our guest, Rada Vatsal, described so well. The world of young women entering the workforce in the 1910s and 1920s in New York City, working for newspapers and magazines. It was a great flowering of that kind of literature, light verse, Society gossip pages, short stories, anecdotes, witticisms, book and theater criticism, with magazines like Harper's and The New Yorker and Vanity Fair finding their legs. Parker got her start by submitting poems to these magazines when she was still in school, and after graduation she was hired by Vanity Fair to write theater theater criticism 
when their regular theater critic, P.G. Woodhouse, needed a break. While there, she met a group of men like Robert Benchley and Franklin Pierce Adams, and eventually those three and a few others started up what became known as the Algonquin Roundtable, which was a group of writers who got together at the Algonquin Hotel for lunch. Although later she had some reservations about this group and what it stood for, it was clearly her path to fame, as the sayings of the Roundtable would make their way into the newspaper and magazine columns being written by attendees. That's how it worked. When it was reported that Calvin Coolidge died, Calvin Coolidge, who as president had been famous for his reserved personality, Dorothy Parker said, how can they tell? And then they all laugh. The bit goes into the next day's paper. Multiply this by 100 and Dorothy Parker is suddenly nationally famous. But she had other ambitions too. In addition to her criticism and her witticisms, she wrote poetry and short stories, and she had a successful stint as a Hollywood screenwriter, co-writing the movie A Star is Born, among other scripts. She wrote the lyrics to the song we heard, I Wished on the Moon, which captures her bittersweet perspective. Here are the lyrics. I wished on the moon for something I never knew, wished on the moon for more than I ever knew, a sweeter rose, a softer sky, on April days that would not dance by. I begged on the stars to throw me a beam or two, wished on the stars, and asked for a dream or two. I looked for every loveliness. It all came true. I wished on the moon for you. That has a happier ending than most Dorothy Parker, than most of Dorothy Parker's works. Much of her fiction and her sayings are devoted to darkness, and she herself had a string of unhappy relationships in addition to her unhappy childhood. But there's a note of hope as well. It's a melancholy hope. It's hope in a minor key. It's a knowing, cynical hope. It's the spirit of hoping for love, knowing that it won't work out, but also knowing that you will once again hope for love. That's what I love about Dorothy Parker. Well, I love a lot of things about her. She's smart and funny and clever. And she takes no prisoners. She's fearless. She was way, way ahead of her time. She was what we would like to think flapper girls were. Not just women looking for a bit of fun before finding men to marry, but women looking to live their own lives. Whether that meant sex or love or marriage or career or some fusion of those things. Because that's what men did too. Dorothy Parker jumped in on this. Maybe she wasn't alone, but she was early and she was influential. The only reservation I have about Dorothy Parker is that sometimes she fell into a kind of stereotype of other women, what we might call slut-shaming today, which she directed at herself as well as others. That's the only thing that for me feels dated. Everything else feels fresh and new. I have no doubt that Dorothy Parker, if she were living today, would be as successful as Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, Amy Schumer, Lena Dunham, and Chelsea Handler, and all the other successful funny women. And if anyone is still holding on to the dumb idea that those four or five women that I named aren't funny, or that women aren't or can't be funny, well, there are about a hundred other names I could list off for you. Just off the top of my head, women today who are in the business of making people laugh, and who do make people laugh. They make women laugh, and men laugh, and pretty much everyone except idiots like the late Christopher Hitchens, whose misogyny took a weird form of not permitting himself to laugh at a woman's jokes. 
All you need to do is open your mind a bit, put your own ego aside, and consider these sayings objectively. Objectively, Ms. Parker's sayings are funny. We'll have Mike Palindrome, president of the Literature Supporters Club, to, on the show to discuss in just a minute. Did the Literature Supporters Club replace the Algonquin Roundtable in New York City, the spiritual heir? Arguably so. Did I ever tell you who I am? Jack Wilson, J-A-C-K-E, Wilson.com, historyofliterature.com. Find us on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, etc. Wherever you get your podcasts, get them on your phone and Bluetooth them to whatever speaker you use. I think I have three or four Bluetooth speakers now. One in the shower, one in the car. I have a pillow speaker. I got this great comment from a listener who said she is an inveterate insomniac. And the History of Literature podcast has helped her in those wakeful nights. She listens, she relaxes, she enjoys the company, and eventually she gets some good REM sleep. I could tell she was careful not to say that the podcast was so boring that it put her to sleep. It was a nice, it was a nice comment, nicely intended, and that's how I took it. And as a fellow inveterate insomniac, I know how long those hours can be. I'm glad that we were there to help fill the void. It's why I'm here. Okay, back to Dorothy Parker. She was successful and famous and acerbic and sad. She wrote for the radio and Hollywood and the magazines, and she wrote funny, funny stories and poems. And the Algonquin Club was very influential. Who was there at those lunches? It was Alexander Wolcott, who's the drama critic for the New York Times, famous for discovering talent and making stars like Fred Astaire, Ruth Gordon, Helen Hayes. There was Robert Benchley, great friend of Dorothy Parker's, who was an actor and humorist. Haywood Brune, a sports writer. Franklin Pierce Adams, who had a society column, very influential. And Harold, Harold Ross, the first editor of The New Yorker. Others who showed up, Tallulah Bankhead, the actress, and Harpo Marx, who actually talked at these lunches. Noel Coward. George S. Kaufman, authors like Edna Ferber would turn up, and they just had fun. They exchanged witticisms, sharp retorts. When I was born, Dorothy said, the devil touched my tongue. When someone made a pompous remark, everyone else had to stand up and bow to the speaker, until eventually they decided they couldn't do that with Alexander Alexander Wolcott because they were standing too often. It just sounds like fun, a fun literary scene. People who loved hanging out, who loved books and plays, but who were also a little above those books and plays, at least most of the time. They could find the weaknesses and make fun of them. Catherine Hepburn, Ms. <laughs> Ms. Parker said of one of her performances, she ran the gamut of emotions from A to B. Here's another bit of sadness. Dorothy Parker was a woman of... Contradictions. She was naturally shy, but a forceful personality. She was full of fun and humor, but full of bleakness as well. She attempted suicide something like five times. In her work, her stories and poems were collected in the Viking Portable Library in 1944. It's said to be one of only two Viking Portable Libraries that have never gone out of print. You could say that her wit and her celebrity were her real contributions to American letters, and maybe they were. She appeared on some radio shows, and she was known for being kind of a a fixture of the New York literary scene. 
That's an achievement, although something of a shallow one. But in the end, she felt a kind of sadness about what she and her fellow roundtable attendees had missed. That's the final contradiction. The critic who's good at taking down others then decides she herself might have spent more time building rather than destroying. Here's her quote. These were no giants. Think who was writing in those days. Ring Lardner, Scott Fitzgerald, William Faulkner, and Ernest Hemingway. Those were the real giants. The round table was just a lot of people telling jokes and telling each other how good they were. Just a bunch of loudmouths showing off, saving their gags for days, waiting for a chance to spring them. There was no truth in anything they said. It was the terrible day of the wisecrack. So there didn't have to be any truth. That's the real sadness, at least from a history of literature perspective. It's the sadness of talent wasted, of days gone by, the ultimately pointless, the truth that doesn't last. Luckily, she was wrong. She was wrong because she transcended her era. Some of the others didn't last very well, but she did. Maybe she underachieved, but that doesn't mean she achieved nothing. She's still an important figure. Her poems are remembered. Some of her stories are very good. And her wit and sayings still sparkle. Some of them have entered into the English language. She said, this book is a gift. It must have been a gift because nobody would pay for it. That's a line that has long outlasted the actual book she was reviewing. So, what's left of the Algonquin Club? The hotel is still there. What about the spirit of its most famous patrons? Our friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Literature Supporters Club, went there to see. We'll hear his report and select Dorothy Parker's greatest sayings after this. Now, I started with Ella so you could really hear the lyrics. And, of course, she's beautiful, beautiful singer. But for Dorothy Parker... This one might be even better. This is a 20-year-old Billie Holiday in her first recording session. I wish on the moon For something I never knew Wish on the moon For more than I ever knew A sweeter road off the sky on April day that would not dance away I begged of a star to throw me a beam or two wished on a star and asked for a dream or two Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, 
perfect for the whole family. Join the cat in the hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, Mike, so tell me about your trip to the Algonquin. What's going on there these days? So I had gone to the Algonquin Hotel in uh, 1991, and I had tea in what I... I believe used to be the Oak Room, mm-hmm. which is now gone. And sadly, the Algonquin Hotel is, well, maybe it's always been owned by a Marriott, but the uh, former Oak Room was split up to help enlarge the, the bar, which is the mm. Blue Bar. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it was converted into a private breakfast room for Marriott Reward Elite customers. <laughs> <laughs> that was sad. Do they have to be particularly witty or be in in touch with the theater scene or anything, or you just have to accumulate points? You, you know, yeah, maybe I shouldn't make fun of it. Maybe it's, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe people are uh, sardonic enough to... Yeah, maybe that's where it was all happening. To, like, engage in very, very good conversations, <laughs> the elite customers. So I stepped into the hotel, and I, I've been in many hotels, Mm-hmm. many hotel bars and i did think that people there were dressed better than average it seemed like mm. all the men were wearing jackets okay uh and all the women were wearing hats i don't know if that was that particular day but... <laughs> right like flapper hats yeah wow was, uh, yeah we ate i i had lunch with uh, a friend of mine and we ate in what looked like a lounge extending off the reception area mm-hmm you know, it's oak paneled. It's you know high ceilings. It was it was it was quite nice. I mean, I I, I think I was expecting something more cozy. That's the way I remember it. And mm-hmm. in fact, I think probably the the phenom- the the movement now with hotels is to extend and create views. So when we sat, we could see people coming in and exiting. Do they do anything to celebrate the past? Is Are there any statues of Dorothy Parker or anything like that, or plaques or anything? There's a plaque mm-hmm. outside the hotel that refers to acid-tongued wits, Dorothy <laughs> Parker, and, uh, you know, mentions, um, you know, Robert Benchley. Benchley, right. Walcott. Alexander Walcott, sure. But then it also mentions people who, writers who frequented the Algonquin Hotel and bar subsequently like Faulkner and Sinclair mm. Lewis and mm-hmm. you know James Thurber so I, I mean I think I was expecting 
I, I had low standards going in. I, mm-hmm. I expected it to be just like a lot of hotel bars these days, which is you either get business types or you get men wearing shorts and sneakers. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, did you see any anyone who looked like they were a writer? Not really, but I guess these days writers come in all disguises. So, I suppose so, a lot of people looking at their phones, probably. You know that that's a good question because um, I, I thought I noticed a more better than average number of newspapers. Oh, um, <laughs> people sitting in chairs with their newspapers, maybe hiding behind their newspapers a little bit. Right. You know, one of the things I didn't realize as we, I guess, transition here to Dorothy Parker, who we're celebrating today, we're going to have a draft. I didn't realize they ate lunch there every day. So I guess I was thinking it was more occasional than that, maybe once a week or something. But it seems like they really, yeah, they met there every day to have lunch and then try to get, uh, you know, something witty into the next day's paper. I also didn't know, I was reading about this too, that um, they met during Prohibition. Oh, right. So um, all this, they, they were all drinking out of flasks or something. They, you know, right. they, they, you couldn't order a drink. Right. The other thing um, that really struck me about them meeting there every day is that later Dorothy Parker kind of minimize the importance of the Algonquin Club and said, you know, meanwhile, the real writers of our generation were Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and they were creating work that lasted, and we just traded quips and light verse and things like that. And she seemed to, I I think looking back, she probably wished they had met a little less often, and she had had a little more time to work on her fiction and her poetry. But in some ways, I think the the quips that she had are her greatest literary achievement. She's a little bit like Dr. Johnson in that sense. I also think that she was maybe the coolest writer ever. And yeah. She probably had a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> um, hanging out with these guys. And it's quite a compliment that she managed to produce anything. She's pretty unbelievable. I. I found when I was making my picks for things that I wanted to take in our draft as upcoming, I really could limit myself to things that I found funny today. You know, there was no, I didn't have to do any kind of, well, this must have been really funny at the time, or, or that was probably the first time someone had said that, or it, it felt really fresh. Like I felt like Amy Schumer could use some of these lines. Yeah, it got me thinking about how I used to hate the New Yorker cartoons mm-hmm. because I felt like the New Yorker cartoons were primarily for um, white people, middle class, upper middle class white people over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes <laughs> over, when I... Over the age of 65. <laughs> and, and sometimes when, when I read... Chortling like, away. <laughs> Exactly. And sometimes when I read um, what lines, lines that are supposed to be funny, I just think, yes, that's, that's the New Yorker cartoon humor. (laughs) But yeah, her lines, I think also the fact that, you know, she really had a lot of honesty in her lines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think she was just trying to be funny. I think she was trying to tell people off. Right. I mean, not to make this too profound, but Maybe they felt, but, you know, they didn't have the courage to say. Right. 
Okay, well, let's get started, and I'm going to let you pick first, as I usually do, although this is one time in particular where there is really a number one that I want to draft, so my fingers are crossed that you're not going to take it before me, but why don't you go ahead? So I, I just went with an entire poem. I, I, I went with, mm. resu- with Resume, okay. which yep. is um, a short one, and I, I, I actually started telling this to my 11-year-old daughter the other day. Anyway, it goes like this. <laughs> Razors pain you, rivers are damp, acids stain you, and drugs cause cramp. Guns aren't lawful, nooses give, gas smells awful, you might as well live. So that was, that was that number one. is a classic. It's it's very her. You know, that's yeah. a very good choice because it's got that that dark humor and that nihilism. Yeah. When someone says, I, I think I smell gas, I immediately think you might as well live. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there a gas leak? I smell gas. I just think of Dorothy Parker. <laughs> Let me go to my first pick, which is kind of similar in this same theme. Uh-huh. What fresh hell is this? <laughs> which is uh, how she answered her doorbell. <laughs> which i just i just love you know it's it's her it's mean but it's not mean it's kind of about her it's about her worldview but it's also got that touch of the critic you know where yeah. she's kind of saying well i'm dark and depressed but you know don't mind me i hate the world but look how obviously i enjoy doing that too you know it's kind of fun to to be this curmudgeonly you know i like the way there's so many of her lines revolve around entering and exiting rooms mm. and opening doors. It's almost like she just tried to, you know, have something witty or non-cliched about every every moment of life. Well, it's kind of a New York theme. There's so many doors in New York and so many doors that open up into little worlds. But also, it reminds me of somebody who's sitting at a restaurant with their pals and people are coming and going. Yeah, just attacking everyone. Yeah, who's this? You know, <laughs> like the the new person walks up and, you know, what do you think you're doing here? Some of the lines that I've got, maybe I'll get to them in the draft, are, are really about initial encounters with people. She really was an expert at that. Okay, what's your number two? So my second line is one that I think I used to find very funny and witty. And then I was thinking it's kind of an old person's line. But now I've come back to to embrace it. <laughs> so it's brevity as the soul of lingerie, lingerie as the petticoat said to the chemise. <laughs> I hadn't heard the second part of that. I just heard brevity is the soul of lingerie. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. She has a lot of wordplay. That's the other thing. Yeah. Take me or leave me. Or as is the usual order of things, both. Or that famous one about if all the girls attending the Yale prom were laid end to end, I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> um, I Actually, that one was not on my list because I think we'll get to some uh, that talks about her and her sexual experiences. And they're so funny and so wonderful to read from someone from that era that she's sexually liberated and really ahead of her time but the ones where she's criticizing other women you know like saying that so and so i can't remember who it was but it was something like she knows 18 languages and she doesn't know the word no in any of them and things like that that makes her seem a little dated to me 
she really went after Claire Booth. <laughs> Lucha. Luke's, Luke's, I mean, yep. I've never even heard of her, but a couple number of lines. Yeah. You know, well, I think she her. wasn't she like a socialite. I think she was married to uh, the editor of Time magazine. Okay. Yeah. She, it, yeah. That's the old like told that Claire Booth Luce was invariably kind to her inferiors. Mrs. Parker asked, and where does she find them? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was one where I guess they were walking through a door. There's that door theme again. Oh, right. And Claire yeah. said, uh, age before beauty, as Dorothy walked through first, and then Dorothy said, pearls before swine. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. Okay, I think it's my turn, right? Mm -hmm. Here's my number two. She has another great theme, which is about writing. Oh, yeah. If you have any young friends who aspire to become writers, the second greatest favor you can do to them, you can do them, is to present them with copies of the elements of style. The first greatest, of course, is to shoot them now while they're happy. That that reminds me of her line, um, I hate writing. I love having written. Yeah, that's really good. It doesn't have that that great humor, but it's got the kind of insight that a lot of her a lot of her best lines have. Yeah, I mean I I, I, I go back and forth with thinking that she was happy. Um mm-hmm. my my next pick is, is what she said should be said on her or um, gravestone, which mm. is mm-hmm. excuse my dust. <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I don't really know. Did she, did she attempt to commit suicide? I know that she, you know, was what they call a, a functioning alcoholic. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the term they used to use back then. But yeah. yes, I, so as I was looking, preparing for this, I was thinking, was she happy? Cause you know, she, she had relationships, but she had no kids, and she mm-hmm. was kind of a, alone, surrounded by these men that, you know, I, I didn't think were very warm, and right. um, I she, guess she wasn't warm either. Yeah, she did attempt suicide, I think, more, okay. than, more than once. Okay, so the epitaph, that actually was the epitaph that she wrote that, and then it actually was used. That is on her oh, tombstone. Really? Yeah, and but there was God. there was one point where she had come up with another idea as well. That would be a good thing for them to cut on my tombstone. Quote: Wherever she went, including here, it was against her better judgment. <laughs> okay, I am going to go with her criticism, which was another great thing. Uh, I think she was great at. I think she. It must have really been a, a pleasure for early subscribers to The New Yorker to be able to open it up and have Dorothy Parker's criticism in there. This is a famous line of hers, of Dorothy's. This is not a novel to be tossed aside lightly. It should be thrown with great force. <laughs> I laugh because that was my next pick. <laughs> uh, okay. Do you know what novel that was? No, but I feel like a lot of people have um, quoted that <laughs> yeah, without... Right. Um, you know, like Kingsley Amos, I think, used that without attributing it to her. Yeah, and they use it for all different things. I've seen it in a lot of different contexts. You know, like this is a, a politician or a political system that should not be tossed aside lightly, or it's just in every kind of context, the the formulation can be used. But actually, the novel that she was referring to mm-hmm. was called The Cardinal's Mistress, and it was written by 
Benito Mussolini. <laughs> <laughs> My God. I didn't know Mussolini wrote a novel. I was I was thinking about trying to buy it. Uh, see see if it's any good. It seems like the perfect book for the bathroom. <laughs> I went to a dinner party and I noticed they had four books in the bathroom and it was all Chekhov and I didn't know what that meant. Oh, yeah. Okay, what's your? We're up to number four already. All right, so I went with an entire poem just because um, I think this. Her titles for her poems are amazing. Mm -hmm. um, such good titles. And um, this poem is called Symptom Recital. I do not like my state of mind. I'm bitter, querulous, unkind. I hate my legs. I hate my hands. I do not yearn for lovelier lands. I dread the dawn's recurrent light. I hate to go to bed at night. I snoot at simple, earnest folk. I cannot take the gentlest joke. I find no peace in paint or type. My world is but a lot of tripe. I'm disillusioned, empty-breasted. For what I think, I'd be arrested. I am not sick. I am not well. My quantum dreams are shot to hell. My soul is crushed. My spirit sore. I do not like me any more. I cavil, quarrel, grumble, grouse. I ponder on the narrow house. I shudder at the thought of men. I'm due to fall in love again. Hmm. There's a lot of like things that get her down in her poetry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's it, it, to me, it's very refreshing because I, I find that it, it's hard to make a negative, a very negative poem interesting. Right. Uh, and she does it time and time again. Yeah, she really does. Okay, so why don't uh, I go? I think I'm up to my number four, so I will do a pair of them. Both of them, which I liked because of the way they surprised me. I'll start with this one, which is another, another thing about writing or piece of criticism. Uh, quote, and there was that poor sucker Flaubert rolling around on his floor for three days looking for the right word. <laughs> which I liked. And it reminded me of this one. Every year, back comes spring with nasty little birds yapping their fool heads off and the ground all mucked up with plants. <laughs> all right, I was going to go, I'll go with this poem. It's very short. Unfortunate coincidence. By the time you swear you're his, shivering and sighing, and he vows his passion is infinite and undying. Lady, make a note of this. One of you is lying. <laughs> Um, and you know a lot of her poetry rhymes and is and is short conversational you know she she uses a lot of slang and mm -hmm. her take on love you know resonates as with me as as very modern very utilitarian yeah she seemed to uh, i don't know what happened with her husband but she seemed to be kind of in her comfort zone when she was just living in the in the apartment and and having affairs and just having men kind of come and go. So, uh, I think I'm down to my last one. I wanted to mention my favorite quote about Dorothy Parker, which is from Alexander Wolcott. And he said, she is a combination of little Nell and lady Macbeth, <laughs> 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 which seemed perfect. I don't know if I'm going to be able to choose one. I've got like 20 written down here. <laughs> Why don't I do this one, which is since I talked about people uh, coming and going. 
there was a point where she met uh, Norman Mailer. And this was now after Norman Mailer had had become instantly famous as a young man for writing his 1948 debut novel, The Naked and the Dead. So Dorothy Parker would have been, I guess, about 55 when this came out. So I'm sure I'm just picturing the scene of Norman Mailer, how brash he was and how cocky. And I'm sure he probably encountered Dorothy Parker thinking that she was some, you know, washed up has been that that he could dismiss and cast aside, you know, how he he had that attitude toward women. And I don't know if you've read The Naked and the Dead. I haven't, but I've been yeah. meaning to because I, I I have this weird war fetish. I've worked with a woman once, a professor who had had Conan O'Brien as a student at Harvard. Mm-hmm. And she told me that he had written his undergraduate paper on Norman Mailer, and it was called The Naked and the Unread. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, uh, there's a strange thing in the book where it uses the F word all the time, except the publisher had convinced Mailer to replace the word with euphemism. So it says fug everywhere, everywhere, F-U-G. <laughs> so when... When Dorothy Parker met Norman Mailer for the first time, she said, so you're the man who can't spell fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought probably really put him in his place. (laughs) I, you know, I didn't, I didn't add this to, I didn't say this on my top five, but I, I always like her line, even though I, I disagree with it. Um, Men seldom make passes at girls who wear glasses. Yeah. That's another one that, probably gets said a lot and written a lot without being attributed to her. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a great rhyme. Yeah. So one that I think is too good to leave out is when she was writing under her pen name, Constant Reader, for The New Yorker. And apparently she had gone through this stint where the A.A. Milne's books were really popular, the Winnie the Pooh books. And in the, I guess for three years, they were basically all over the bestseller lists. When we were very young, Winnie the Pooh, Now We Are Six, and The House at Pooh Corner. She, I think she trashed one, and she she acknowledged, quote, to speak against Mr. Milne puts one immediately in the ranks of those who set fire to orphanages. <laughs> uh, but then she had to review another one, uh, The House at Pooh Corner, and there's a part in the book where Pooh revealed that he added the tiddly pum to his song to make it more hummy. And Dorothy Parker wrote, and this is her writing as a constant reader. And it is that word hummy, my darlings, that marks the first place in the house at Pooh Corner at which constant weeder flowed up. <laughs> oh, man, we need a Dorothy Parker. She had another one that was really good, and I'm going to have to give this episode an explicit rating, but I think it's worth it because one of the interesting things about Parker is how ahead of her time she was in a lot of this stuff, including her language. An editor apparently came looking for her because she was behind on her deadline, mm-hmm. and they said, oh, he's he's going to he's wondering where you were or something, and, and she says... Tell him I was too fucking busy, or vice versa. (laughs) (laughs) 
apparently she got kicked out of her elementary school because they were describing the Immaculate Conception and mm-hmm. she insisted on referring to it as spontaneous combustion. <laughs> <laughs> never, Which is great. I've never heard of the fucking busier vice versa. I'm going to have to use that. Isn't that good? Yeah, that's really Too good. fucking busy or vice versa. Okay, so here's a, a special bonus question for you. Mm-hmm. She, as you mentioned, she never had children and she outlived her husband. She died in 1967. Do you know to whom she left her estate and all her future royalties? Wow. Don't tell me the Algonquin Hotel. No. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I give up. Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. And upon his death, it went to the NAACP. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. They have they have like a uh some sort of tribute to her at the headquarters of the NAACP. And there's this crazy story about Lillian Hellman, who was the uh literary executor of the of her estate and who tried to block the the payments because she apparently thought that that the royalty should go to her. Really? Yeah, and that there had been friends, and she didn't think much of Martin Luther King Jr. And I mean, Lillian Hellman is like, whenever she appears in literary history, it's always as a sort of villain. She tried to to block her final wishes, although I think in the end it it turned out fine, and and the money did go. Uh, it, it, Martin Luther King Jr. died very soon after, was assassinated very soon after. So I think it it mainly has gone to the NAACP. But as far as I know, it still does. You know, so when you buy a, a Dorothy Parker book, I think you're contributing a little money to a good cause too. Well, what do you think about um, her future? She was just she was so good at what she did, and it's wonderful to have a woman from that period that you can really point to as somebody who was in New York and holding her own and cutting this figure around town, and she's such a uh, an icon. And then when you actually look into what she said, you know, this stuff is as good as Groucho Marx or anybody who was around. And if you're a fan of literature and books, it's even better because it's, you know, so much of it is about other writers and about the writing process and everything. So I think she has a role in American literary history that is probably pretty secure. I, uh, yeah, yeah, I enjoyed rereading her poetry. And I've, as I was saying, I've been reading it to, to my 11 year old daughter and her friends, just making announcements. Now we're going to hear some Dorothy Parker. <laughs> How did they like it? They love the rhyme. I think the rhyme is a, is a way to get, drill it into their skulls. Right. <laughs> so. Okay. Well, I think that'll, that'll do it. Um, Mike. Thanks again for joining me today on the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. Okay. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. I wish we still had Dorothy Parker today. But we do have plenty of people, women and men, to celebrate. Her spirit lives on, if not 
quite as bright as it was when the source itself was here. So where can you find more Dorothy Parker? I recommend avoiding the movie with Jennifer Jason Leigh, which was a terrible performance, in my opinion, and did not sound anything like the actual Dorothy Parker. A much better version is available at audible.com, and they'll give you a free copy of it if you sign up for a trial subscription at audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. I recommend the portable Dorothy Parker, read by Lorna River, which also has an introduction to Ms. Parker and her life. For a longer look at Dorothy's life, I recommend Marion Mead's biography, which is also available in a nice audiobook version. That's audibletrial.com slash H-O-L. Thanks again for joining us. It's October, the best month of the year, and we'll be back later this week with a Halloween episode you won't want to miss. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.